Welcome to episode 225 of The Digital Life, a show about our insights into the future of design and technology. I'm your host, John Follett, and with me is founder and co-host, Dirk Niemeyer. Greetings, listeners. For our podcast topic this week, we're going to continue with part two of our multi-episode discussion about the evolution of software and the future of computing, looking at how a handful of advances, such as artificial intelligence, the Internet of Things, neuroscience, and additive fabrication will come together to transform software and hardware into something new, which we're calling smartware. Smartware are computing systems that require little active user input, integrate the digital and physical worlds, and are continually learning on their own. In addition to our podcast discussion, we're happy to announce a six-part monthly series on smartware in partnership with our friends at respected experience publication UX Matters, which will be starting later this month with the September 25th issue. So today we're continuing our discussion, this time about the smartware transformation, uh, which is an overview of smartware and, and sort of the, the big picture of our thesis around the different technologies that, that are coming together. So we're contending that this evolution is enabled by four major advances in science and technology that are cresting all at the same time. Artificial intelligence, uh, science, including uh, neuroscience and genomics, the Internet of Things, and additive fabrication, 3D printing, uh, creating a sort of physical from digital. You might uh, also want to include uh, virtual reality as part of that, which is, of course, the digital overlay uh, uh, on physical or uh, augmented reality. Yeah, I think about these things as hardware that compress time, space, and distance. So let's start off by talking about sort of this new fascination and uh, discovery that we're having around artificial intelligence. It, it seems, Dirk, that artificial intelligence is is really having a big moment right now, wouldn't you say? It is. And over the years, you know, since artificial intelligence as a field first, you know, began at, at a retreat um, and, and retreat of academics in the early 1950s, artificial intelligence has had many moments in the sun. And there's a cycle where there's some kind of advance or something interesting happens out of the artificial intelligence community. The media galvanizes around it, um, has all kinds of giant wild predictions about artificial life and science fiction stuff. The world gets excited. People throw money at it. Nothing really comes of it, and it kind of fades fades away again. So uh, there being a hype machine around artificial intelligence is nothing new to this moment. It's just the most recent of the hype machines. Now, uh, this time, I would say the hype is more um, deserved than some of the past instances. Um, you know, machine learning specifically as an approach to artificial intelligence, which is not new. Um, it just for a long time was not the prevailing theory. It was not the theory that experts in AI, um, for the most part, other than the people who were more proponents of it, thought would be the the correct sort of the the winning theory on, on AI, but certainly at the moment for the problems that it's solving today, uh, machine learning has made some tremendous advances and gains, and the result of which are, are things such as artificial intelligence now being able to, for example, 
defeat humans in the most complicated of strategy games. First, chess, which you know precedes this this time period, goes back into the 1990s. Uh, but more recently, Go, which was thought of as the the game that AI could never defeat, given the the number of permutations and the complexity in that game. But even more recently, now uh, AI is defeating professional humans in poker, which. Once Go was achieved, people said, well, no, 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 poker is the real test uh, because of the aspects of, of bluffing and betting and the, the, the complexities, the different sort of complexities that go there. But AI has, has crushed that as well. Um, you know, these, and there are other examples of machine learning successes, certainly, uh, but in, in ways that the public can sort of understand and identify with uh, AI, machine learning, conquering humans in the hardest strategy games is, is one of the, the easiest to wrap your head around. Yeah, and it seems it seems like uh, you know, every other headline I read in the tech press has has AI or machine learning in it. Now that's an exaggeration, of course, but not uh, much of one. <laughs> it, it really it really feels like uh, a lot of money, a lot of attention, uh, and a lot of smart minds are being um, uh, put on uh, artificial intelligence. So the 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 second uh, set of technologies that we're interested in for our, our thesis on, on smartware, all the sciences that really help us understand human, humanity so much better in, in a very personal way in, in, in some instances. So, you know, we're calling out neuroscience and genomics as being significant in, uh, in, the, in the march to smartware. Dirk, why are neuro, neuroscience and genomics so important? They really get to the, the, the issue of understanding us, of, of solving the complexity of, of the human element, um, which, you know, has been at best uh, voodoo in, in decades past. You know, the, what, what you frequently hear, and this is every day this remains true, but for a new time horizon, is over the last decade, the field of neuroscience has learned and achieved more than in all previous human history. Same goes for genomics. Um, the, the speed at which these sciences, these ways of understanding the human animal are advancing are exhilarating. And they are allowing us to take things that before were guesses, that before were qualitative in nature around psychological research, sociological research as, as just two, two narrow examples of, of many, um, and, and make them science and how we think of science with science as fact, science as this hard quantitative thing, um, neuroscience from the standpoint of behavior and genomics from the standpoint of the, the very fabric of genetically who and, and what we are. And the advances are um, of a type that not only are giving us um, relevant, useful, immediately applicable insights, they are also very um, they are also very transferable into industry. They are also things that companies can galvanize their product development around and offer solutions that start to have the potential of like the iPhone of really addressing core use cases to the human condition that make them essential for us to invest in and make a part of our lives. Now, unfortunately, thus far, industry has not been very successful in leveraging these things, even though it is leverageable, even though some companies have tried. Um, the, the best successes have been in healthcare. Things like, um, you know, we, we worked with a customer, for example, that will take 
um, take your unique genome and match it up with um, clinical trials that are, again, custom designed for your specific genomic characteristics. Like that's some of the more interesting stuff. But looking at, you know, from our last episode, the history of dead machines, that is still more on the like, you know, business education side of things than the consumer everyday use. It's wonderful. It's awesome. It speaks to the potential of this stuff, but it still is is very niche. So the future of how these sciences are going to to um, sort of be a rocket booster for where smartware is going, I mean, we, we haven't even really scratched the surface. So the third technology or set of technologies that we want to highlight around smartware is the Internet of Things, which, you know, is certainly no stranger to the the hype cycle as, as well as uh, the aforementioned artificial intelligence. In the case of the Internet of Things, there are so many opportunities to connect systems, to connect environments, to, you know, uh, monitoring or uh, software optimization uh, that that it's it's really hard to understate how impactful the IoT could be in terms of making our world really a a sensor driven one that is both digital and physical. So uh, we've we've talked on on the show about smart cities or uh, smart agriculture uh, or smart industry. All of this is. You know, it's sort of at, at its beginning stages, uh, and on the consumer side, of course, we've we've bitched and moaned about our not so uh, smart products uh, in our not so smart homes. Uh, mm-hmm. But su- suffice it to say, the Internet of Things, the the potential there comes largely from just sort of this massive sensor deployment, uh, which makes the digital aspects uh, have have tendrils into our physical world, you know, and myself as as a reader of much too much science fiction, uh, that immediately makes me me a little bit worried, but uh, we'll uh, revisit that uh, that worry in in another episode, I think. Dirk, what are your thoughts on on sort of the burgeoning ubiquitous uh, sensor computing that is uh, the Internet of Things? Yeah, burgeoning is a good word because it's not it's not totally there yet. I mean, in consumer application, it's generally things like the Fitbit. It's things that um, I don't know what the right word. A toy is not fair, but uh, what, you know, when I used a device similar to the Fitbit some time ago, it was useful for a period of time while I learned about behavior. So, um, you know, it was a pedometer, it counted steps, and it was a it was it was a useful device while I was figuring out what is what is what is ten thousand steps in a day, what is twenty thousand or five thousand, and after a while of getting that data from the device. I had it internalized. I knew about how many steps I had each day, and the precision of how many steps that I walked really didn't matter, even though the device ballyhooed that uh, I could have that sort of to-the-step precision. And so a lot of consumer Internet of Things are still in that sort of class of, you know, sort of lightly educational, but not not crucial to be integrated into our lives. Um, there's obviously things around healthcare, again, that... Um, that go beyond that, that are essential to, you know, potentially people's uh, life and death. 
um, as they use the devices to monitor themselves in a in a myriad of ways. And certainly in business application, uh, now businesses are all censored up and are using those sensors to help maximize their profits. Um, so the Internet of Things is very, very alive and very present, but the the best of it isn't happening yet. You know, our colleague, Johan Sonnen, had the concept of the health room some years ago, and there's nothing even remotely like it yet. And the health room, uh, for our listeners who haven't uh, read about it, the health room is the notion of turning your bathroom into a, a sensor-infused environment so that as you naturally go through your use of the bathroom, it is gathering data and using that data to um, diagnose for diseases or to monitor your health in some way that is already being monitored by the doctor or is just identifying, flagging things that you or a healthcare professional should be aware of just through your walking through the room and getting your weight through um, your urine, through the hair that goes into the shower as just a few examples of how the entire bathroom is converted into a health room, into the diagnostic center of your well-being. Um, that's where you know smartware and the Internet of Things will have their most profound impact, but we're just nowhere near realizing those things at this moment in time. So the sort of next set of technologies and, and, and final group that will talk about today in, in uh, the context of smartware is uh, what you call, Dirk, uh, technologies that compress uh, uh, time and space. Uh, and really, you know, when I think about technologies like 3D printing and, and sort of the the sort of rapid advancements uh, that are happening there, it it really does. Um, it makes me excited. Perhaps not for the uh, reality of it, which you know is still um, uh, developing, but for the promise of it, which says that hey, when I have a broken part on my snowblower, I can. You know, just print that part uh, in the middle of you know the the nor'easter, and uh, you know not have a problem because I can just replace it uh, instantaneously after I you know purchase the 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 part CAD description from you know the the snowblower maker, or I can uh, you know print a present for my uh, son because I know he really wanted that hard to find toy uh, that you can't get any at any retail outlet uh, near the holidays, you know, or potentially you could print something that goes into your body, right? Uh, you know, whether it's as simple as a, a mouth guard or, um, you know, something more complex like a, uh, uh, a sophisticated bandage or splint. Um, so, you know, it's. I think it's right. The sort of blanket term that you use that this does compress time, time and space. But it, it almost feels to me like that. Uh, uh, I don't know if you remember Star Trek: The Next Generation, where they just asked the computer to to generate objects or food or whatever. Oh, sure. You. The they, replicator. The replicator. That's it. It feels like the replicator to me. Uh, I don't know if you have that uh, fanboy reaction to it, Dirk. 
Well, again, it has the promise of the replicator, but it isn't there yet, right? I mean, the technology to do the snowblower part you were talking about is totally there. Like, that is there. But the market hasn't caught up. And it's questionable whether the snowblower company even wants to support that because right now they can sell you the part at a, a ridiculous price. I mean, buying replacement parts for for products that we've already bought that are, you know, um, appliances, snowblowers, these kind of things, the price is through the roof. I mean, almost always, not almost always, I, in, in my experience and, and looking at specific things I've dealt with recently, most recently a dishwasher with a broken part, which I had to deal with this week, it makes more sense to buy, a, buy an entire new dishwasher than to buy the replacement part and to have it installed, like just from a, from a dollars and cents perspective, which is absolutely insane. And buried in that process are margins for the dishwasher company or the snowblower company that, you know, we're, that, that, that they don't want to lose. And so, you know, it's, it's untested and it's unclear whether a consumer would be happy to pay $100 for the snowblower part that comes out of their little printer and it's this tiny little thing um, or, or not. Whereas now, you know, with, with the excuses of, oh, we have to manufacture it over in China and, you know, there's, it's, there's all of these, these processes, we have to use these giant machines and we have to get it to you, like, they can sort of get away with the larceny um, <laughs> because they're able to. But, you know, if you're the one who, who goes to those, those parts and if you're not discounting it, making it seem reasonable, like, yeah, you know, 20 bucks feels about right for the license essentially to do this part where I'm paying for all the hardware and all the, all the work. Um, so, so there's a lot of, there's a lot of sort of unproven business model stuff, but the technology is already there. Um, you know, when, when, when I talk about sort of compressing time and space with these hardware technologies, and it's a weird group of them that we're sort of, we're sort of bringing together here, John, but with the, with, um, you know, additive fabrication, it's really compressing space and time because it's it's kneecapping the supply chain. You're going from this huge process of overseas manufacturing, all kinds of different you know sales middlemen processes to direct to the consumer, and that's that's massively disruptive. It's not being realized yet, but like talk about compressing time and space. I mean, you go from this massive global pursuit to what is even though it's geographically dispersed, what is basically a one to one personal pursuit like you could have literally have the dude or dudette who designed the <laughs> snowblower be the one who you're interacting with when you get the replacement part in this in this newfangled world that doesn't require massive manufacturing and all of these other steps um you know there's questions about capitalism that have to fit into there as well long-term viability of that that system but the, the compression of time and space is incredible it's incredible and you know, another of the technologies, the sort of hardwares that we're grouping in here, virtual reality, I mean, that's doing the same thing. Virtual reality, right now, again, it's a novelty. I mean, there's some things being done with virtual reality that are super cool, super fun, but, you know, you do them a few times and, and you've got it. It's it's neat from being different and beyond what otherwise is available in the world today, but it's not sustaining. It's not, it's not something that will really change our lives. That technology at some point does have the potential to change our lives as we no longer need to, whatever, leave our home to shop for a car, leave our home to shop for the dishwasher that we have to buy because the replacement parts are so expensive, among many other use cases. But there, there's just this interesting mix, additive fabrication and, and virtual reality and, and other things that are just, just crushing space and time, just absolutely pulling them out of the process and making things very 
direct, very immediate, very personal, very one-to-one. And when those things are maximized from the standpoint of human experience, from the standpoint of um, doing good for humanity, which sounds Pollyanna as hell, but I'm just going to go with it because I've got the mic. Um, <laughs> that's going to be awesome. That's going to really change the world in ways that are, are lovely and sustaining. But again, we're just not we're just not there yet. We're just not there yet. It is still the dawn of, of smartware. It's far from the golden age. Well, listeners, uh, hope you've enjoyed this overview of uh, the technologies that we think are going to contribute to the evolution of, of smartware. Uh, next week, we're going to dig into the ways in which smartware uh, will manifest in design and functionality of future computing. Remember that while you're listening to the show, you can follow along with the things that we're mentioning here in real time. Just head over to The Digital Life, that's just one L in The Digital Life, and go to the page for this episode. We've included links to pretty much everything mentioned by everybody, so it's a rich information resource to take advantage of while you're listening or afterward if you're trying to remember something that you liked. You can find The Digital Life on iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Player FM, and Google Play. And if you want to follow us outside of the show, you can follow me on Twitter at John Follett. That's J-O-N-F-O-L-L-E-T-T. And of course, the whole show is brought to you by Involution Studios, which you can check out at GoInvo.com. That's G-O-I-N-V-O.com. Dirk? You can follow me on Twitter at D Niemeyer. That's at D-K-N-E-M-E-Y-E-R. And thanks so much for listening. So that's it for episode 225 of The Digital Life. For Dirk Niemeyer, I'm John Follett, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.